This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett Phillips, your host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Barbara Savage about her new book, Mers Tate, The Global Odyssey of a Black Woman Scholar. Dr. Barbara Savage, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. And so, Dr. Savage, I wonder if you could just begin the interview just by telling us a bit about yourself. Yes, I was uh, born and raised in Virginia, uh, which I still call home. I went to University of Virginia there as an undergraduate and then moved to Washington, D.C. and actually went to law school and worked in Washington for about 12 or 13 years and then had an early midlife crisis, I would say. And long story short, uh, ended up uh, in graduate school and uh, studying African-American history, which I was able to do uh, at Yale. And I studied there with uh, David Brian Davis, a great um, uh, slavery scholar, um, John Blassingame, the other great slavery and African-American history scholar, and David Montgomery, great race and labor history uh, scholar. So I was well served by them and then launched my uh, career at the University of Pennsylvania, where I uh, taught uh, for 25 years, teaching 20th century African-American history and also researching and writing in that uh, in that same field. And so um, that's kind of the, the short story of, of who I am and, and how I came to do this work. Wonderful. So how did you come to this particular project? This is a long story, which I will shorten for you and for those who are listening. Um, I was involved with a collaborative project on Black women's intellectual history that was basically created among a group of of friends uh, as we saw a real need for more attention and more inclusion of Black women writers uh, and thinkers in the broad trajectory of what African-American intellectual history looks like, American intellectual history. And we decided that we each, in addition to organizing the collaboration and editing it, that we would each write an essay, you know, a standalone essay for this volume. And I did not have uh, a topic in mind or or, or an approach to it. And then I remember that I had run across um, Merce Tate in some research on another project. And so because so much of my... um, 
my entire actually academic writing career has depended so heavily on the archives at Howard University. I was vaguely familiar with her and her name, uh, but not her work and certainly not all that I later found out you know, she was. And so once I began to dig around in her work um, through the, the miracle of digitization, which really you know came at just the right time, I, I discovered that this is a woman who had written five books and published dozens and dozens and dozens of articles uh, on international relations and diplomatic history, and somehow had been erased from that panoply of scholars that we associate with Howard because she was there in that heyday with Elaine Locke and Rayford Logan. Uh, John Hope Franklin came the year after after she arrived uh, and a whole cast of, 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 of um, extraordinary uh, scholars, you know, Frazier and others. And so I decided that I would do an essay on her and it began as an essay and once I began to have some sense of not only her work, but of the trajectory of her life, I really was very hesitant to do a biography, which is what this is, um, because I had never done one before, never wanted to do one. Uh, and I now have read a great deal of biography, but at the time my preference was always for memoir or autobiography. And so I um, I call myself Tate's reluctant biographer because I, I didn't really have any intention to, to do a full a full-length biography of her, but I found both her life and her story and her work so compelling uh, that I decided to give it to give it a go. Uh, and there's also, I think, a time in some cases where we find our research subjects. But I also believe that in some ways she found me and would not let me go. And so here we are. And I, I wonder, could you talk about some of the challenges that you found in sort of writing the biography, uh, having not written one before, and how did mm -hmm. you sort of overcome those challenges? Well, the the I'll tell you the uh, I'll, I'll start with the general the challenge of writing a biography about her and this particular person and this particular life is that she was born in 1905 and died in 1996. That's the first challenge. She lives the full length of the 20th century, which is great and rich, except when you're trying to write a book that's not going to be four or five, 600 pages long. So that was the first thing. Uh, the other thing is that she traveled incessantly, and we will talk about that I, you know, later on in our conversation. So this is also a subject who is constantly in motion for most of her life. Um, but more seriously, what I found, and I think one of the things that um, was especially important for being able to do this work is that we are all trained so much to look for silences and absence in archives. And yet here is a, a woman who saw herself as historically significant from an early age and saved everything about herself. And then when she retired from Howard in the mid 1970s, established an archive, basically a collection of her professional, primarily her professional papers, but also her personal papers and memorabilia and ephemera. And so once I found this really uh, extraordinary archive, I, I was reassured about the fact that there was certainly enough material about her to justify um, a, a biography, and in addition to 
her large body of published work. And so the challenges for me, the most vexing pieces were, in fact, how long she lived and how much she traveled. But in the writing, you know, I've written a couple of other books before and they're standard monographs where you're, you know, you have four or five, six chapters, you make an argument in each chapter, you move on through and you may have a set of overarching questions that you bring to the subject, whether it's race and media, my first book or religion um, in my second book, but I had never written anything that had a continual uh, narrative arc that is from chapter one all the way through to the, you know, to the last chapter in the book. And so the writer needs a writer needs to figure out how to sustain that narrative arc, how to make some decisions about what's important and what's not, especially in this case where I had, you know, ample archival uh, sources and then also trying to do two things at once, which is that I certainly wanted to tell this compelling inspirational life story, which which it was. But I also wanted to try to give equal attention to her work. And those are two different bits of the brain and and also trying to keep in mind how to keep a, re- a reader engaged in both of those projects. So that was the, uh, that's the general challenge of it. I found myself reading a lot of biographies or collecting them and particularly uh, biographies about women who were either writers, writers or artists, but who were doing creative work to get some sense and not just black women, but in, in particular black women, but but um, and then I just I studied the the genre a little bit just to get a sense of structure and how people do certain kinds of things. So once you're in it, you know, I was committed to finishing it. So, uh, you know, I just kept on pushing through. Well, as you as you write and as you sort of spoke about, right, like Dr. Tate left behind this large archive of her own life. Um, I wonder, can you explain to us just the the size of this archive um and how did you go about sorting through that for this project sort of making those connections that you just sort of spoke about yes well she's got several archives the most substantive one is at howard and i believe it's about 30 large file folder boxes and i may be i may have erased some of my memory um when i first encountered it and then, and i will say this uh, this is a, a credit to the great staff at moreland spengarn the the um, collection was unprocessed it was as she had taken it out of her filing cabinets in her office at Howard and and some at home and put it in boxes there. Now, and so they allowed me in it as they were then also processing it as I worked in it, which was, uh, you know, as I said, I give a great deal of credit to them. And so um, I, in in some ways, you, you know, there's a rough finder's aid to it. So I could see certain things I wanted to look at first, um, which uh, I wanted to see how much of the, if this is intellectual history, I certainly want to see how much of the early drafts of materials, her, you know, the intellectual output. But I was also really drawn to her photographs and personal correspondence. And this is a woman who kept every thank you note and every Christmas card. I think that anybody ever sent and was also someone who engaged in a practice that was very popular at the time, which is scrapbooking. 
So there would be scrapbooks for special occasions or scrapbooks for this trip or that trip. Um, and also someone who was a photographer. So she had scrapbooks of the photographs that she took during her travels. And so, you know, very interesting archive in that way. There's another collection of her papers at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, which is where she went as an undergraduate. And these are primarily materials that were taken out of her home after her death. So they they really are a rich kind of missing chap missing bits from what's at Howard. And then there there are uh, traces of her in Delhi in India from the time she spent there as a Fulbright scholar in the 50s. And also I had access to her student file at Oxford. Um, and that was enormously helpful to me in trying to figure out her time there. Uh, these are very different, you know, very different collections. And the only one that she really had a hand in, I should say, was the one at Howard. And so let's get into Dr. Tate's life a little bit here. Um, so who were her parents and sort of what effect did they have on her upbringing? She, as I said, was born in 1905, but in, in, and in the center of rural Michigan. And she was born to a family of homesteaders. This is she, her parents and her grand, actually her grandparents had traveled from Ohio, um, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and moved to Michigan to take advantage of the uh, take advantage of the land grant uh, acts of 1862. If you can get there and try to settle this land, you can it can become yours. And so she comes from that background of of black families who moved by ox cart um, from Ohio to Michigan uh, in in that period in the 1860s. So she's from this really interesting rural background. It's quite different from the rural South. This is not Alabama or Georgia. Her, her family then was free well before the Civil War. And this is very important, I think. Uh, her mother was literate, though I don't know how well educated. And uh, I don't know about, uh, and I think her father was literate as well. And so in that way, both that kind of independent streak that they had, and they were very proud um, to be out there in the frontier uh, in the in the way that they were. And also, they also were very encouraging of her and her own education and other members of her of her family uh, as well. So it's an she she um, always referred to herself as the granddaughter of pioneers. And I think she started to do this at a time, if you may recall, you know, Alex Haley and Roots in that period in the 70s, where lots of people were referring to themselves as the grandchildren of slaves. And she purposefully called herself the granddaughter of pioneers, which was also the truth. Um, and so that's who she was. And I think that that spirit of independence and um, and land ownership really um influenced her greatly. And what about Dr. Tate's education? What was school like for her? Um, what what was college like for her? Mm -hmm. um, and how did this sort of contribute to her later scholarship? She went to one-room schools in rural Michigan, um, where she and her brother were, off, were, in some cases, the only Black children there. And certainly when, by the time she got to high school, she was the only Black student. And a small, this is a small 
um, a, a school. But nonetheless, I mean, there were other black families in the areas where she where she grew up, but they were scattered because they scattered to find the land. So it's not as if black folks who who moved there in the 1860s kind of congregated in one place. And so it would not be unusual for, for them to be the only black child. She ended up going to um, Western Michigan, uh, what's now Western Michigan uh, University to basically study to be a high school history teacher. And so she she got a bachelor's degree and was uh, you know all set to do that. Um, and then only to find out that Michigan, however liberal it thought itself to be, was not yet hiring black high school teachers. And so she had to move to uh, Indianapolis where um, there were all black high schools and she was able to get a job there. So that's that's her basic uh, un undergraduate training. I would say um, this is someone who had a capacious intellect and a thirst for knowledge constantly. So when even when she was a high school teacher in Indianapolis, she started to take graduate courses from the university uh, in foreign affairs. She was working on her French and her German. So she's always looking looking forward, looking outwards and not really satisfied. She did her master's degree as many black teachers did during the summers at Teachers College in New York. Um, and then of course her real training in international relations and diplomatic history came at Oxford uh, in 1932, 35, and then at, at, at Harvard in 1941, when she, she was the first black woman to get a doctorate in government there. And so it's a it's an interesting kind of intellectual history, but those are the those are the highlights of where she where she was trained. It's an unusual kind of Anglo-American training, too, that I think influences her work going forward. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. And in what way does that sort of influence her work? How does she sort of find herself being involved and interested in sort of U.S. imperialism in this way? Well, I think part of it actually comes from living uh in at Oxford, uh, the seat of empire, quite frankly, in the 1930s, and certainly being there on the cusp of of what would be uh, World War II. And so she had traveled to Europe in 1931 as a as many young black women were. She went to study French at the Sorbonne and used that as a as kind of a, a, a place from which to explore England and Europe. And she went to Geneva. And it was there that she uh, enrolled in a school of international relations um, affiliated with the League of Nations. And so again, the interest is there, that becomes influential. And that's when she gets the idea that she wants to go to Oxford to study with one of the leaders of that of that program. Um, and so you know, she was at Oxford 32 to 35 uh, to get this graduate degree in international relations. And, and and that was, I think, very influential um, and studied economics and geopolitics, just a broad exposure that um, that she brings back with her when she moves to North Carolina in 1935 to take a teaching position at Bennett College. 
a black women's a, a black black women's college there. And we've touched a little bit upon sort of the global travels. Um, the subtitle of this work, obviously, is uh, the global odyssey of a black woman scholar. Um, so can you tell us just a bit more about these travels, and then also the effects that that would have that that had on uh, Dr. Tate, both personally and professionally. She was unusually well traveled in that she she literally circled the globe twice uh, and always traveling solo, which is an interesting point as well. She went once east to west and then she went west to east, um, you know, twice around the globe and traveled to, you know, beyond London and Paris. But uh, as I said, she had this Fulbright in 1950, 51, and she chose not to go to Paris, but chose to go to India and uh, to to teach at a college outside of Calcutta that was Tagore's uh, university, Vishra Bharata. And it was there that she used that as a base to travel throughout the enormity of and diversity of India, uh, but also throughout Asia, uh, Thailand, Cambodia, and then the, the larger Southwest Pacific. And so at that time, those would have been very unusual places for her to be traveling, as I said, not the usual kind of, um, you know, guided tour. And it, I, and and then finally, in the 1970s, she was able to go to Africa. I think on her travels, always she is um, she's going both for the personal pleasure and intellectual satisfaction of the travel. I mean, she's always learning, but she's also researching in, in a lot of cases. And so the research and the travel go hand in hand, archives by day hit the museums and the, and restaurants and cultural things by night and on the weekends. So that was a pattern. But I can't imagine that she would have been able to do the work she did had she not had this opportunity to travel, because there's nothing like going from living at the seat of the empire in Oxford to going to post-independence India in 1950 and seeing what imperialism and post-imperialism looks like on the ground and that influences uh later her in her concerns about post-independence africa because she had seen what the remnants of empire looked like in india this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Could you tell us about some of the connections that she makes between sort of post-colonial India and sort of post-independence African countries as well? I think one of the things that she was most worried about in the post-independence period is the a different kind of manifestation of imperialism, that it may not look like people showing up on your shores with boats and guns. Uh, she was much more interested in international corporate capitalism. And in particular in Africa, she did research on railroads and deep seaports, which I had to learn a lot about to understand, but she saw that infrastructure as yet another tool um, in, in the kind of re, 
it's not recolonization, but it certainly is a control at, of uh, an attempt to control indigenous labor, mineral resources, and link that to the broader uh, global economy. And so that was that was her fear that um, she she saw the railroad the railroads and that kind of building of of structural of an infrastructure as more efficacious than guns. She wrote. And she saw the railroads there as uh, sinews and uh, of, and arteries of empire. That was the metaphor that she used. And so I thought that was a very creative way to think about what's happening in that period. I'm sure there are other manifestations of it. But I think that that was a, and I think she learned about the railroads from her time in Europe, but in particular from her time in India, where the British left that railway system that they had built. And she then, you know, did the research on colonial uh, railroad railroads in Africa, but also a second study on the, the then the contemporary um, construction, including of the Tanzam uh, railway. And why do you think that Dr. Uh, Murray Tate has been erased from this sort of this pantheon of sort of American intellectualism and Black female intellectualism. Okay, so the why and the how are two different questions. Um, it, the fair, she was in fact erased from the history um, by people who were in charge of writing particular kinds of histories of Howard University, in particular Rayford Logan, who was her longtime chair. He was her chair for over 20 years, which cannot be a healthy relationship under the best of circumstances. Um, but along, uh, alongside all of those prominent men, there were also very other very prominent women who did not make their way into that history uh, as, as, as much as they should have. So that's the first thing. I think in, in fairness, because she's not writing about African-American history and she's not writing about domestic um, racial uh, questions, although she is writing about race in everything that she does, it means if, if she had been, there would have been more logical places to slot her in. Um, although I think the fact that she was a woman, as, and as she said, in a race and sex discriminating world uh, was always an impediment to visibility and to to greater notice um, of, you know, for her. So it's a combination of that. She's a black woman scholar who's not writing about black women either. So she's defying all of these categories and that kind of complexity, the easy narratives that we all use when we teach or research, she, she's, she's not in those boxes. And it was one of the things about working on her that was really eye-opening for me because I realized how narrow our categories are uh, and we have to make room for people and ideas like Tate and those that she wrote about to, to really um, lead us to a much better, more expansive understanding of African-American history in the 20th century, especially of Black women. Absolutely. And so I wonder with the work that you've done in this wonderful book, uh, I wonder if you could answer this question for myself and I think also for the audience. Who was Dr. Murs Tate? Oh, man, Dr. Mer she was perhaps one of the most audacious, uh, bold, independent uh, Black women thinkers you've never heard of. 
in the 20th century, but a woman who was devoted to education, to training the next generation of, of Black students, um, someone who in her leisure was a master bridge player and a, an extraordinary chef. She collected recipes from all over the world. She traveled, a big party giver. Um, but in the end, someone who spent hours and hours and days and days at the Library of Congress, researching and writing and taking very seriously the work of a scholar. So that's that's who she that's who she was. That's who she is. And and I think she's an inspiration for certainly I've had a chance to talk about her in many places here in the U.S. and abroad. And she is an inspiration for everybody I, I introduce um, to her. Absolutely. I will say that's the case for me after reading this book as well. Thank um, you. What sort of audience did you imagine for this work? Well, because as because it is a biography, and I, I should say generally, everything I write, I write for the field. I feel like somebody's got to do that, that it's okay to simply just want to be a regular scholar who's writing for students and teachers. Um and uh, and that's no different. That that's the same for this, even though it's a biography. But I also thought because it's a biography and because her life story is so compelling, that in addition to scholars and students, that this is a book that can be read by and I think appreciated by any general lay reader. I write in a in an accessible style that's not by design, I think in an accessible way. So uh, and I think I've been able to both satisfy those who would be primarily interested in figuring out who is this woman and how did she do all of this and those of us who also want to to go down deep into the work that she did. And I hope that I'm able to keep those two different kind of reading audiences engaged. I tell people if they get to a part of the book where I kind of get a little bit too deep into the to the work, just push on through and the and, and then we'll pick it up and keep moving forward. And uh, so I wrote it with with a you know with a general reading audience in mind, and particularly. Um, black readers, black black women readers, uh, women readers, scholars. And I, again, I think there's, there's a lot in there for a lot of different kinds of people. And what do you want readers to sort of take away from this book, having read it? I think the thing that I that keeps coming back to me, and I think that she stands is emblematic of this extraordinary commitment to the idea of the emancipatory potential of education. And so we see someone who's on literally a lifelong quest for education and, and learning, uh, in addition to being a scholar and a teacher and, and trying to train people in, in that. But it just kind of, if that theme does fit, you know, so solidly in the kind of broader theme of education in African-American history, the quest for education, the quest for literacy, access to uh, to graduate degrees, you know, 1927 is, you know, when we finally, in the 1920s, we finally get three Black women who are able to to get PhDs. And so to have someone who's, you know, who's trained as a scholar, takes it seriously, but also always took her work out into public spaces and her travels and her slideshows and her photographs uh, into churches and civic groups and women's clubs, wherever YWs, YMCAs, wherever people 
gathered um, to say, look at what's going on in this wider world of international relations and diplomatic history. Black people need to know this and need to be engaged with it. Well, Dr. Savage, we've taken up a lot of your time and Thank you so much for for being so generous with your time. Uh, So I'll ask you uh, one final question here. What are you working on now? I have uh, been working on recovering from writing this book. And I don't say that lightly. And I I say it because I I have friends who've done biographical work and I did not believe them when they said, "Mm, biography is different, biography is different. And it is, it's a much more uh, intense project and a much more exhausting process and also just a much more emotionally engaged process. So I am actually uh, in recovery, trying not to work on anything. I have some a vague interest in a, in a number of things that I'm thinking about that are all in Kuwait at this point. So I am in rest and recovery for a minute. Wonderful. I, I hope that that uh, continues for as long as it needs to. I, I will say it, it sounds like a wonderful project to just be resting and recovering yes, thank from you. it. It's a luxury and I'm, I'm trying to take it. So you absolutely should. Um, this book, I will say was uh, wonderful to read. It was it was like a gift to me. And so thank you so much for the work that you put in to this, uh, to this book and sort of casting this light upon Dr. Tate as well. Um, I also want to thank you for being on the show today. Oh, uh, thank you. I've I really enjoyed it. And thank you for the, you know, the good work that you're that you're doing through the podcast. It's a it's a great use of the medium to get, you know, to get history out there. Uh, so I appreciate your work as well. No worries. Thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation as well. Um, and take care. OK, thank you. Thank you.